Last week's um, sermon, the title was To Boldly Go, and it was, very, it was a very subtle Star Trek reference um, for those who enjoyed Star Trek. Subtle because most people don't, haven't seen it or don't know it, I realized, and I was quite shocked. I thought lots of people had seen it, but anyway, and I thought I'd be very clever and have a, a second one that would follow up that would be um, Spock's Live Long and Prosper. Anybody seen Star Trek? Anybody? Okay, so there are some of you. You can admit to it, Grimmy, it's fine, but don't be so shy. Don't be like, yo, I know it's not as cool as Star Wars, but it's still, it's, it's there. Um, and, and so, I don't know if you, like Spock's Live Long and Prosper. So Spock was like um, Captain Kirk's 2RC, was second in charge, and that was the standard greeting. Leonard Nimoy was the original actor. I'm showing my nerdiness now, but he was the original actor, and he was real good, and he had that little hand signal. Can you do that? Can anybody do that? Can you get there? Let me try your other hand. Okay. Yo, Tershi got like fancy things going here. Okay. You can tell the people who are bored at home. You're sitting. But there's even, there's even an emoji like that. You know that? There's even, a, there's even a... And so what he would do, this was his standard greeting, was live long and prosper. And so I thought, this is, I'm going to do this cool series, like to go boldly, which was like the main saying from Captain Kirk, to boldly go where no man has gone before. That was their kind of tagline. And then Spock's thing. So those are the two. And I thought, yes, I'm being real creative here. And then, so this week I decided to look online and I realized there are a hell of a lot of pastors and sermons that have those two things in a series. And it burst my fragile little creative bubble. Anyway. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Family camp, we're doing it. Beam me up, Scotty. Take me home, Jesus. There we go. Paul says it's better that I stay with you, but there's even a scripture for it. Yes, look at that. I, I didn't see that one on those services. Well done, Mike. Hey. Anyway, so where are we? Um, live long and prosper. So, so anyway, so, so this, is, this is what I felt for this morning. And and it's, it's been a bit of a weird one for me. After seeing, after seeing how many other sermons there were with those two titles, I actually thought, no, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to do both in a row. It's just too cliched. I'm going to change it. And so I was kind of, I was kind of looking at other things and, and praying and trying to hear God on, on like, okay, well, what, you know, what else? And I just felt that God just kept bringing me back to this same message, which is why you're getting it this morning. Um, and it's not often that you will hear me preach against something. Uh, I don't, prefer to do it. I don't like to do it. It's not something that I think is something that we should often do. But I just felt God kept bringing me back to this thing. And, and you know, I prefer to preach like, this is what we stand for. I'd rather know what you stand for than what you stand against. You know, rather nail your colors to the mast than tell me where you don't want to go. I'd, I'd, and that's, I, I'm like that. So, but this morning, I, I just felt this, there's a little bit of maybe correction that is, that is hopefully going to come in our hearts um, every now and again. We need to do it sometimes. And so I will try and be obedient this morning. But, but when we think of that, the, the words in the title, to live long and prosper, we often, we often immediately form, we have our own understandings of what those words would mean. So what does it mean to live long? So, I mean, we've had two, there were two birthday celebrations this week, one for Mr. Wattam, who was 80, and then one for Nidia, who was 90. I mean, that's crazy. That's living long. I had an aunt who lived to 90, 94 how was Auntie Joy? 94, something like that. And so that's like a, that's a, that's a long innings. That's a long time to live. And, you know, we often think like, what does it mean to prosper? What, is, what does it mean to be prosperous? Or what, what does prosperity look like? And we form these own, our own images and we have sort of conventional wisdom around them sometimes. 
Um, and unfortunately, a lot of those concepts, particularly in the church, have been colored by a particular message that has come. It started kind of in the middle of the second half of the 20th century, and it was, it, it's become known as the prosperity gospel. And if you've heard of it, it's also known as the health and wealth gospel. Um, and and it's, <clears throat> it really started in, um, in suburban America that was doing, it was really taking off after the war, and it was, it was a lot of affluence, and America was really rebuilding, and the, the economy was growing, they were, and they were doing really well. And, and the message came that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. That's the message that came out. That's God's will for his children. And, and so, unfortunately, it, the message might seem new in, in that regard, and that it's, it's the last sort of 50 years or whatever it might be, 60 years. But the heart issue has been around a lot longer. And so if you want to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to read 10 verses out of a letter that Paul writes to Timothy. And he addresses the very same thing in the human heart that this health and wealth gospel preys on. And I use that word carefully, but intentionally. Because what it does is it, it speaks to our natural inclinations. It speaks to our natural sort of earthly conventional wisdom, if you would want to call it that. So 1 Timothy chapter 6 <clears throat> from verse 3. And the NRV with their titles. By the way, you know that the little titles in between the paragraphs, those aren't there in the original text. Eh? That's, Paul didn't give each section. It's just the, the translators trying to be helpful to, to give you. But sometimes the thought process runs between paragraphs. So those titles aren't always helpful, but they, they are. They're trying to be helpful. So anyway, NRV titles this one, Love of Money. It's an amazing title. So 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 to 12. I'm going to read out of the NRV. By the way, if you'd like a Bible, we have at the back English, Afrikaans, and Zulu. You can help yourself. They're free. Take one. Um, if you know someone who wants one, please take one and give it to them. We want uh, to give that out. As part of our gift. So, verse 3. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. And then Paul counters it with his truth. He says, but in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses." I thank God for His Word because it is oftentimes so contrary to how we think, but yet often so clear in addressing issues that we face in both society and in our own personal lives. So, what does it mean to live long and prosper? What does it mean to be prosperous and healthy? 
So the modern day interpretation is that we should have, um, that, that we should have perfect health and that God wills your financial prosperity. And that's where the trick comes in, is because the, the preachers that work in, that have operated under that prosperity gospel, and unfortunately that thing has taken hold in Africa and it is destroying lives, is that God wills your financial prosperity. They limit their prosperity down to one aspect of life, being money. And the, the message of the health and wealth gospel is this. It says, you must give in order to get. The more you give, the more you will get. Financial blessing is a sign of God's approval. God is like this. I don't know if you ever, if it, maybe it's hard to admit in church on a Sunday, but if you ever gambled in the early days when you still had to go like all the way down to the wild coast, and you had to cross that bridge in the trans sky and you felt like you were like a foreign, different country. You weren't really, but you felt like you were. And you went to the wild coast and you put some coins in. They, still, wasn't, they didn't just take the money off your card. You had to put coins in. And you pull the one-armed bandit and the thing rings and you're like, yo, a few more coins and I might win. And that's how some of us, that's how this prosperity gospel treats God. The more you give, the more you'll get. Keep giving and eventually you'll get. It treats God like a one-armed bandit. It goes on to say the implications being that to be poor is to live under a curse. To, to be financially poor is to live under a curse of God. And that's not part of the will of God for our lives. But, and that's, that's a fairly easy one. Some of us can kind of fairly easily see that that's unhelpful. But the health side of it is a little bit more tricky because what happens is that Jesus died so that we can be healed. Scripture says it, Isaiah 53. Now, if we take that in context, what he was talking about is our spiritual healing, I believe. But God promises that he will heal because sickness and death are the results of sin. And Jesus, when he came, healed people. He didn't make anybody rich, but he did heal people. So the healing part of it is a bit, is a bit more controversial, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about this enough. But the problem is with the health and wealth gospel is it says that you can be healed always if you have enough faith. It was a word of faith movement is what it was also known as, where if you, you could claim your healing by saying it over, even if you didn't experience the results, you would, you would speak that I am, I am healed. You will, you're still in a wheelchair, buddy. But... And so it seems, might seem ridiculous on the outside, but there's some very clever interpretations of Scripture which push, us, push people into that thing and push people into a, a very oppressive kind of religion. But anyway, the, the responsibility was put on you. If you had enough faith, you could be healed. God, God's there to heal. So the problem isn't that God doesn't want to heal you. The problem is that you don't have enough faith. And that's how that message was preached in that. Sickness is caused by not living within the will of God. And so, just quickly, what is the, what are the, I just picked out three quick problems with these things. And the first one is, and, and that's the problem and the condition of the human heart that this health and wealth or the prosperity gospel ministers to and, and really um, picks on in the human heart. And that is selfishness. It's a self-centeredness. Because it, it makes it about us. It makes it about what I can get out of this thing. It makes the gospel about what I can get out of it. And to be sure, there's a lot that we get out of it. But it places our needs, our comforts, our wants, our happiness at the center of the gospel message, which it isn't. Jesus is at the center of the gospel message. It's based on our selfish desires. And it does that by using God to get what we want. You see, when, when we come 
and, and, and this is the tricky thing about all deceptions and, and, and things that, that are slightly wrong, is that there's a, is an often a very, very true, oh, that's right, there is an element of truth in all of them. It can't be a very true element of truth. It was very bad English, sorry. But there's often an element of truth in the lie that makes it seem real. And so what this does is it takes biblical principles of things like sowing and reaping, things that God gave us that are, that are good, like being healed or, or giving. But, and it just twists them a little bit and says, give to get. And you're like, okay, well, that takes a, a good biblical principle of giving and, and satisfies my selfish desire to get. And it kind of marries the two nicely. Do you see the problem? So God said, I want you to give out of worship to me. So when, when you give, if you give on a Sunday morning or if you give once a month by EFT, whatever it is, however you give, it should be fine that I take that, would you be offended? It should be fine that I take that money, if, if, I, if I felt God so say, the cash, put it in a little bowl here, put it in a little bra, and set it on, on fire. How many of you would be offended if we did that with the tithes every week, the tithes and offerings? It, because we think, man, I've got to get, I want to see that thing working. I want to see, like, what are you doing with that thing? We want some free Bibles and tea and coffee and maybe, you know, feed some people. But God says, I want you to give out of worship to me. What happens with it from there on out is not your responsibility. What comes out of that is the, 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 the benefit we get out of giving is just the pure joy and the, of worship. Because that's what our giving is. It's an act of worship. Anyway, this is not about giving. It's, a, it's about the health and wealth gospel. But do you see what it does? It takes a very good thing and just twists it slightly with a human desire and colors it in. We're, ex we're giving. And so what this says is, is you don't have to give out of worship to God, but you give in order to get back. And that's wrong. Because it uses God to get what we want. In the, in the health part of it, it says you can, you can remind God of his promises spoke, spoken in faith. Speak those promises of God in faith and God must act. And my initial response to that is God must nothing. Maybe it's just my rebellious nature, but man, God is God and I am not. And that is good. And we cannot force God to act. God is always sovereign, even over his promises and the things he commits to. He chooses to submit himself to those things on occasion. But he is always God. We cannot, no matter how much faith we muster up, force God to act. And you see, again, that plays into the thing of, I want to be in control. I'm at the center and I want to say who does what when. And that is a control issue that we have with God. And unfortunately, that will not work. God will not be controlled. The third thing that it does, that negatively out of this health and wealth or the prosperity gospel, is that it maligns the very people that Jesus came and lifted up the most. And that so often through the Bible, the heart of the Father speaks to those he wants to save. It maligns the poor, the broken, the vulnerable, and the discontent. Those are the ones who it says, you are the least of these. And Jesus came and said, no, no, that's who we spend time with. And he lifted up those people. And he went into their brokenness and their vulnerability and spent time with them. He didn't come along and go, oh man, you poor people. Shame on you. My father has cursed you. I'm going to do, have nothing to do with you. I'm going to go with the wealth. If you look in the life of Jesus, it's often the wealthy who caught it from Jesus. They're the ones who often caught the, the harsh words from Jesus. The poor he had much grace with. Much, much grace. He, he had lots of patience with them. 
The, I mean, the Old Testament, it goes on and on about how we are to look after the foreigner who is vulnerable. We are to look after the widow, the orphan, the least in society. They are to be cared for. Out of that place, that is considered righteousness. Out of that place, God will bless you. So the, the, the financial and, and prosperity blessing that the Old Testament talks about, that the scriptures are often used in the, in the health and wealth gospel, are as a result of looking after the poor and being righteous in yourself. They're not the end in themselves. That's the act. And so what this does is it says, if you are poor, you are living under a curse because God can't release financial blessing into your life. So you need to come and give more. One of the worst things I've ever seen in church was, a, it's called a paper Sunday. We, were, we used to work up into Malawi a fair bit and we'd go up there and what the churches, and they were very, mostly very, very poor churches. And so what they would develop once a month is they would have paper Sundays. And on that Sunday, you don't bring coins to the offering, you bring paper money. No coins. You, today's paper Sunday. You bring paper money for the offering. Because the, and and it, was, it was the more you give, the, give more to God and you will get more. And it was just milking the poorest of the poor. And it was, it's horrific. And that happens right across the board from third world, you know, poor bottom end of Malawi to the wealthiest suburbs in the richest countries. There are those messages being preached. And it, what it does is it's basically playing on human emotions and desires of selfishness and control. To say you can get something out of this this is you can you can god if you if you live if you give right god will give back to you in a way and maybe god does but i don't think it is it's not in the word maybe what i mean is maybe god will give to you beyond what you deserve but that is out of his grace and his mercy that is not because you have tithed enough this week and maybe you've hit the sevens in a row this week and you got the holy numbers all in a row there it's not how it works it's completely against the heart of God and the example we see from the life of Jesus of Nazareth. So this, honestly, this is more the American dream than it is biblical Christianity. And as I said, there's some elements of truth in this because, you know, God does bless people. You read the story of Job, very wealthy, everything taken away, God gave him back double. Like, That's an example for me. When my business crashes and I go into liquidation, man, God's going to give me... No, it's not. That's not what that's about. That's not what he was talking about. And we use those things incorrectly and we read those things incorrectly because we haven't dealt with our heart desires. We haven't dealt with who we are in the selfishness in our, in our hearts. But what is... So, what does living long and prospering look like biblically? What does the Bible actually say? So we... We always, when we look at these things, try to take a Jesus-centered view, which we've done, and we've kind of started looking at it, seeing it doesn't line up with the life and the teachings of Jesus as he was on earth. But what is the, what is the kingdom perspective on this thing? So what is a, a, a kingdom of Christ perspective on this? And, and, and again, just for us, we are a Bible-believing church. We value the Bible. We take it as authoritative in our lives. And we must allow the Word of God to shape our views on things. We can't allow our culture and our own personal wants and desires to shape how we read the Bible. It's almost impossible not to, but we mustn't allow it. You can't not. You can't come to the Bible with who, without who you are. But you, as long as you recognize it and you acknowledge it, you realize that I'm coming with certain preconditions and preconceived ideas. But when we acknowledge them, we can read the Bible in a way that we allow it to speak to us and allow it to form and shape us. So, from a kingdom perspective, long life is the eternal life 
that we get in Jesus. Long life isn't just about having a nice life here on earth, adding another 10 years to your life because you said the right prayers or whatever it might be. Long life is about living an eternal life. And we, we understand that, that God is the only infinite being that is around. That's part of what makes him God. But that he is also the giver of all life. And as long as he gives us life, we live eternally. And so us who are with him in Christ will live eternally. And that's what Paul writes to Timothy in um, the second half of verse 12, or just into it. He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So in other words, that is, that's, I, I, some scholars will agree that that is the, sal the salvation moment for Timothy. So when he got saved, his eternal life started. And Paul's saying, I want you to take hold of this eternal life that started when you made your confession. Do you know that you don't have to wait until you die on this earth to start living an eternal life? That's incredible. That's incredible. Because we get to start that eternal life now. It's amazing. Living into eternity who we are going to become. That's what Paul is saying about his eternal life. And it's purely God's grace and mercy that leads us to be able to do that. So the, the healing or the health part, how does that play into it? How does that actually look? And as I said, this is a bit more difficult than the prosperity one, because Jesus came and he demonstrated healing. He actually physically healed people. In some places it said, and he healed all who came to him. In other places, he went to like the pool of Bethesda and picked one guy out of a whole lot and healed that guy. And so how does that actually look? How do we, how do we look at this thing? Because you see, what we see, and, and we, we've seen it through the early church, it happened as well with, with Peter and John. They healed the guy in Acts chapter 3 and 4 at the, um, at the temple gate. And, and on and on, we see Paul um, praying for people and they get healed. And so we see through the early church, not only Jesus, but the church operating in that way as well. And I have seen people healed. Um, people prayed for and things healed. I have been healed of certain things. So, so God still heals. I, there's been times when I haven't been healed. And there's been times when I prayed earnestly and had lots of faith for that person and that person's had faith for God and God hasn't healed them. And so I, it's a bit like confusing, but how does it work? And I think the key for me is that healing is on God's terms and not ours. God is sovereign and healing is on His terms and not ours. We can't heal. We can't, sorry, we can't force God to heal, no matter the level of our faith, because it's on His term. God chooses to partner with us in prayer, but it's still His decision in that moment to heal. And so what it does, if we look at healing, and we kind of ask the question, why? Why does He allow the healing? And the answer for me is that healing demonstrates, and what Jesus did when He, is that the healing was a demonstration of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into those moments, the, the all authority of Jesus in those moments, over the results of sin. So the result of sin is sickness and death and ultimately separation from God. We read that in, in Paul's writing to Romans and throughout Scripture. It is what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned. They were separated from God and they would start to die physically. So we see that that is the result. So Jesus coming back and healing people is a picture of his messianic authority that he is the king that is coming and that the kingdom is breaking in in those moments. But we also understand that the kingdom is not fully here yet, that Christ will still come again. And at that moment, his kingdom will be fully established. And in the meantime, 
We get to live in this sort of in-between stage when Jesus came and was crucified and when he will come back. And so we get, and there's like little sparks of the kingdom that we see. Moments of salvation where people get saved. Healings that happen, whatever it might be. Prophetic words. We see the breaking in of the kingdom every now and again. We see like little sparks in the thing. And we see God choosing in those moments to enter in with his authority and break in and bring his kingdom rule and reign in those moments. And so for me, that's how I understand the kingdom. Is that it's the healing in the kingdom. Is that it's going to be intermittent until Jesus comes back. When Jesus comes back, there'll be no more sickness and death. Everybody will be completely and fully healed. So, what we see in those moments is a marker of what life will be like when Christ comes back. So, that was a very quick thing on, on healing. So, what does prosperity look like from a biblical perspective? What does it mean to live a, a prosperous life? What does it mean to live a blessed life? Hashtag blessed by Jesus. Blame it on Jesus. You know, hashtag blessed. It's a bit old now, but anyway, it was still there. What does it mean to live a blessed life? What does it mean to live a prosperous life from a biblical perspective? So, and, and, and in looking at this, I'm, I'm very cautious because the message could also be read, it's wrong to be rich. And that's not what I'm preaching this morning. Please don't hear me. Don't feel guilty. Don't hear me. Don't hear what I'm not saying this morning. So when we look at Jesus's kind of take on, on money and financial blessing, you kind of say, well, is it, is it wrong to be rich? Is it wrong to be poor? And on both counts, no. It's not wrong to be rich. It's not wrong to be poor. Gordon Fee has a brilliant little book on this. It's very short. It's just kind of three chapters. It's called The Disease of the Health and Wealth Gospel. And this is a quote from him. It says, poverty, he says, <clears throat> poverty per se is not being glorified, nor is wealth condemned. In the new age, in other words, the New Testament age, that's what we live in now, a whole new order has been inaugurated with a new way of looking at things and a new value system. You see, unfortunately, we limit prosperity when we hear it and when we read it in the Bible and we limit the blessing of God to finances and money. And it is so much more than that that God wants. Money is just, we make it a massive thing because we think by money we can get everything else. We think about money, we can get more fun things to do, more th we can look after our health, we can look, but it's not. You see, the Bible teaches, and, and Jesus' example is clear, that the correct attitude to have towards money is one of indifference. The correct attitude to have towards money is, is one of indifference. Whether we have much or little, and, and money shouldn't be a marker of importance, it shouldn't be a marker of success, and it shouldn't be a marker of status in our lives. And yet we have made it that in society. Gordon Fee goes on, <clears throat> speaking about money and prosperity, he says, all of this is true because for Jesus, wealth and possessions were a zero value. In the New Testament age, they simply do not count. The standard is sufficiency and surplus is called into question. And if you're wondering where he gets that from, it's a little verse we read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, where Paul writes, but godliness with contentment is great gain. If you want great gain in your life, look for godliness with contentment. See, we can also have godliness without contentment. We can be godly and not, and not content. But Paul saying to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment is the key 
not what we are getting. Paul says it also in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11, 12, and 13. He says, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content. Can you say content? content. Whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. Can you say content? In any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Have you heard that last verse quoted? I can, sometimes it's, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. You heard that one? Boxers love that one. MMA fighters, they get that one tattooed across their chest. It's amazing how people take that. But what Paul is talking about is he is talking about contentment. And he's saying, because I'm content, I can do all things in Christ. It's amazing. It's an incredible thing. If, you, if you're going to meditate on one thing this week, meditate on that. How do I do all things out of contentment? How is it that when I'm content, I can do all things through Christ? Because we think of content like I've had a large lunch and I don't need to eat anymore. Like I'm content to sit on the couch and watch the Grand Prix. That's what we have. But this is so much more than that. This is actually a dealing with desire. What Paul is saying here is, he's saying, I have dealt with my selfish desires in my heart. That is how I'm able to do all things through Christ. Whatever Christ calls him to, he's able to. Now, to be sure, to, to be clear, we are to steward well what God gives us. I'm not saying that because money should have a zero value or we should have the biblical view as indifference towards money, that we should just not care about it and not look after it and just let it drain away out of our lives. That's, that's not what I'm getting at. So, so please don't, again, don't hear what I'm not saying. God calls us to steward what he gives it well. But the problem isn't in the looking after it. The problem is the heart condition. We're not to love money. We're to be faithful with what we're given and not driven by excess. See, we often, we often measure success by the amount of excess that we have in our lives. And Paul says it like this in verses 9 and 10 of what we read. He says, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many transgressions. And, and, and again, it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. It's not money. Money is not the root of all evil. Money is just a thing. It's just a thing. It's an intangible object that we ascribe some sort of value to. Well, no, it's a tangible object, not intangible. It's a tangible object that we ascribe some sort of value to. And Paul is saying here, it's, it's when we love that thing. Again, it's the heart condition that Paul speaks to. He's saying, don't love that thing. Don't chase it in such a way that you devote your life to it. And Jesus spoke exactly to this thing in Matthew chapter 6 verse 24 when he said no one can serve two masters either you will hate one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot serve both God and money some of the older translations give money a name there and they call it you cannot serve both God and mammon uh, it's kind of sets it up with this demonic sort of thing and it's again it's the love of money that draws us that can draw us away from God so what is our response to be to this? What is it that we are to hear what we are called to do here this morning? I believe that Paul's encouragement to Timothy is how we are to define prosperity and longevity biblically for us this morning in verses 11 and 12 where Paul charges Timothy and it's actually the NIV again 
the, title, the paragraph title is Paul's charge to Timothy. He says, but you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. How many people would say, man, I wish I was gentle instead of rich? <laughs> Which would you choose? $10 million US or gentleness? And you think, well, I could be real gentle if I had $10 million. But that's what Paul is saying. Is he saying rather pursue these things? Pursue things like righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance. Pursue endurance. Do you know how you get endurance? I enjoy running and I enjoy running far because I can't run fast. So I've got to like, I've got to just pick one. And do you know how you, it's by running, you get endurance by running further. Each week you run a little bit further and it's hard and it hurts and you get tired. Pursue endurance. It's not easy. What Paul is calling us to here. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is the prosperity and the long life that we are called to seek. It's a life that follows Jesus and that keeps our eyes and our hearts fixed on Him first and Him first alone. It's not a life that looks around and says, man, what do I need? What next car do I need? It, has to, it must be at, at least... A, a small Toyota. It might not be a big Toyota, but it must be a small Toyota. But eventually get, it must be a Fortuna if you live in... Hey? It must be a Fortuna if you live here. I own one, that's what I can say. <laughs> a white one. Yeah, when you've really graduated, then a white one. But otherwise, in the meantime, you can take any color, but eventually a white one. How many digits must you have on your number plate? It's a life that follows Jesus and that keeps our eyes and our hearts fixed on Him. It's not a life that pursues everything else. That is, what, that is what Paul is calling Timothy to here. That is what he is saying. Is he saying, young man, no matter what you see in everybody around you, don't worry about those who have gone off and sought all of those things that are chasing their selfish desires. Seek these things. This is how you are to take hold of the eternal life that God gave and God put in you. In Psalm 23, David writes it like this in the beautiful first line. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not be in want. I will not need anything. And it's a beautiful, beautiful opening line. Beautiful psalm that David writes. But how can he say that? How can he say that he will never be in want? Because he knows who leads and guides him. And if you read, this is just going to go through Psalm 23. David says it like this. He, he says, I know that God is the one who provides for me. He provides food and water and rest and protection. David knows that God will be with him in the darkest days of his life, that God will never leave him, that when it gets tough, God doesn't get going. God sticks around and walks with David and us. David knows that God will lift him above his current circumstances and vindicate his suffering. David knows that because God is his shepherd, goodness and love and mercy will follow him all the days of his life. And that, just as a side note to that word for follow in there, the, the root word in the Hebrew is radaf. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but that's kind of phonetically how it's spelled. And, and that word literally is translated more often to pursue. It's, of, it's also translated to seek or to, to hunt. So can you imagine goodness and mercy and love pursuing you all the days of your life? That's a very different concept to it just following you. It's a very different thing where it says these things will pursue me all the days of my life but that's why David can say he knows that he is safe in God's hands and that he'll never be in want 
He knows that he is in the intimacy of the Lord's provision, protection, and presence forever. So I believe that God's call for us this morning, the charge that God has for us as a small little local church in Zululand who can make a massive impact on our communities and our region is a return to a radical obedience to God and to Jesus. And it doesn't, it doesn't require poverty and it doesn't require wealth, but it does require righteousness. It may mean that we might live simpler lives as a result of the grace we've received in it, but it will mean that we will have to be courageous to stand up, nail our colors to the mast against the somewhat pagan society that has made materialism and a never-ending desire for more the main thing. We'll have to be courageous to stand in order to give generously to unpopular causes, even, church, even things as unpopular as the church. This is the kind of prosperity and the health that I can pursue, is an eternal life spent with Jesus and a life that is blessed and reliant on God because I lack, I am content. That is the kind of prosperity and health that I want to live into. So let us not, let us not limit God by our small desires and our selfishness as to what He can do in our lives. Let us allow God to expand our desires, to shape and to form our wants, so that what we want most is righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would come by your Holy Spirit and deal with our selfish hearts, Lord God. I pray that you come in, in your gentleness, in your love, in your mercy, and in your grace. Set us free from the conventional wisdom that says it's all about me. Help us, Lord Jesus, to live like you did, to live as your example here on earth was for us. Help us as your disciples to become more and more like you each and every day so that we can go and do what you did, Jesus, so that we can go and love on the poor and the broken and the vulnerable, Lord, so that we can love on others with your grace and your mercy, God. Call us each and every day, Holy Spirit, remind us to pursue these things, to pursue righteousness, godliness, love, endurance, gentleness. We want to live in a place that is fruitful for you, God. We pray these things in the powerful and mighty name of Jesus. Amen.